us to the chapter and the verses that we want to read. I want to read to you from, a, from Isaiah chapter 55. I think it sets the stage for what we're reading. They're good things to be mindful of nonetheless, but it's God writing through, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, <clears throat> verses 8 through 11, where he says this. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. And he gives us a, an example of what he's talking about here to put it into perspective. He says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. And I read this passage this morning from Isaiah to remind us that we often don't understand or see in the immediate moment how God is working together the current events in our life that are promised to bring forth His good and perfect will in our future, right? Sometimes we don't see. Lots of times we don't see. That's where these questions of why and how and, and, and where we don't often get the answers, but we get an understanding of what we're going through only after we've gone through them as God's working His good and perfect will for our future. And most often... It's, it's after these moments have passed or even days or months and even sometimes years go by before we see how God's hands was orchestrating those events that we were going through to bring forth His good and perfect will, just like He promises to do. God says He'll work good right through these things. <clears throat> it's been said, when I think about this, this saying comes to mind, hindsight is twenty twenty. right? If we just could... If we could be able to look back upon something, we get a different understanding. We, we, we get a fuller, nod, a fuller knowledge of what, what had happened. And, and often, this is, this is the point of learning. That's where we learn is sometimes on the, on the other side of things where we go, oh, I get it now. And um, this familiar cliche often holds true, I think, in regards to seeing God's hand working and moving in our own lives. And with this being said, I imagine Saul, who we read about here having his conversion experience, right, where, where he gets some understanding to some things that he just didn't have knowledge of to begin with. I imagine Saul, who had seen with his own eyes, as we've read up to this point, Stephen be stoned to death, and even heard with his own ears, right, um, Stephen speak God's words before the Jewish Sanhedrin and, and really proclaim Jesus of Nazareth, as God's chosen Messiah and Son, speaking of His death and His resurrection and His ascension, and also um, speaking words of, of condemnation against these religious leaders at that time, saying, you killed Him, you put Him to death. And I believe that Saul would look back on all of these things that he had seen and that he had heard in this moment that we read about now with, with better vision as his spiritual eyes would be opened, right? And he'd realize how God had been planting seeds in those moments that would eventually bring forth God's will in and through his life. And so here in chapter 9, we read about this miraculous, I would say awesome, account to Saul's conversion. And it's in this chapter that we see God assault Saul in such a way that he even becomes physically blind. But through this encounter, through this God encounter, 
Saul's spiritual eyes are open, and Saul comes to understand how God had been working in his life to reveal in this moment the truth of who Jesus is. And so we read in verse 1, some context for it. It says, then Saul, still breathing threats. We know that he'd been persecuting the church there in Jerusalem, right? Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, those who were followers of Jesus Christ, it says whether it was men or women, he wasn't discriminating here in his, in his persecution, he was asking for letters so that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone all around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city. And you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they had led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, when we consider this account, we know that there are other passages of Scripture, specifically in the book of Acts, that also detail this event, where Paul recounts this story, and, and the culmination of it gives us the big picture of what's really going on. So two other times in the book of Acts, read about Paul's conversion, and I encourage you to go read there on your own. I'll connect some dots this morning, but the first is in um, Acts chapter 22, and then additionally in Acts chapter 26. And with the culmination of these three accounts, um, we're, we're told about this miraculous and awesome event. But what we're told consistently in all three accounts is of Saul hated the church. How hatred had filled Saul to the point where he sought to destroy any man and, 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 or woman who professed to follow after Jesus. And we know that Saul was willing to leave Jerusalem in order to hunt down those who had fled from him in Jerusalem, and even willing to go as far as Damascus. And when you look up on a map how far this was exactly for Saul to journey, you see the level of his commitment as it was 160 miles one way from Jerusalem to Damascus. And we may not think about that as a great distance today because we can travel great distances like this very easily. But in Saul's day, more than likely we're not told, but Saul would have been traveling perhaps on a donkey. That would have been the customary way of travel at this point. And Google's amazing. You can, you can Google these kinds of things. Like how long would it take for a donkey to travel 160 miles? I was curious. So it's an eight-day journey. I'm thinking, I don't want to travel one day on a donkey, not even one hour. I don't have that, that kind of commitment or resolve for anything, but here Saul was willing to go on an eight-day journey, 160 miles, in order to arrest and bring these Christians, these followers of Jesus Christ, back to Jerusalem so that they would be imprisoned or put to death. Now back in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, when we look at some context for this, we read there how these religious leaders, which included Saul, it says that they were cut 
to the heart. Meaning, what that means is they were convicted by the words that Stephen had spoke to them when he stood trial before them and testified of Jesus. Consequently, when we look at that conviction, when they were cut to the heart, we, say they respond, we see that they responded to this with anger. And they retaliated by seizing Stephen, taking him outside of the gates of the city of Jerusalem, and stoning him to death. And we were told that Saul consented to Stephen's death. He was there. He watched. He also responded to Stephen's words of conviction that his response was to bring a great persecution upon the early church. There in Jerusalem, it says that he attacked them at that time like a wounded wild animal. That's a graphic picture. And he did so, think about this, he did so because he was thoroughly convinced of his own righteousness. He believed he was doing the right thing by arresting Christians, by persecuting them, by putting them to death, meaning Saul believed Christianity to be a false religion that was polluting Judaism and leading people away from a true faith in God. Remember, Paul would write about himself and about this time in his life in the book of Philippians and speak of how devout he was to the laws of Moses and to the Hebrew faith, saying in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6, there's a different context for this passage that he writes here but nevertheless we see how he was at this time he says if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh he says i more so circumcised on the eighth day out of the stock of israel of the tribe of benjamin a hebrew of hebrews concerning the law he said a pharisee a religious zealot concerning zeal he said persecution of the church Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, this is amazing. He says, blameless. Blameless. And as a Pharisee, we know that Paul was in the business, along with all the other Pharisees, of making laws for the laws so that they don't break the laws. And so Saul was sincere, get this, in what he believed. But like many people today are sincere about what they believe, Saul was sincerely wrong, right? What he believed about Jesus up to this moment had been wrong. And when we consider how Saul and these other religious leaders, think, I think about this, when, they, when we see how they were cut to the heart and responded in these ways that they did, we must also consider Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Because in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, which speaks of that day of Pentecost when Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and the other 120 disciples came down upon the streets and preached, right? We're told that the crowds of people heard were also the same language, the exact same wordage. They too were cut to the heart. But their response was much, more, was much different. Instead of retaliation, they repented. They became believers of Jesus Christ when they heard the gospel message, when they heard the good news. And I point this out, this, this contrasting response to being cut to the heart, because we might think that Paul or Saul at this moment had heard the gospel message and it was somehow powerless in his life. And it didn't have any effect on him. And I think we, we wrongly think that same thing today to people who don't respond in a positive way to the words of the gospel message, that it has no power over them. It has no effect on them. And I point that out because, because even though Paul didn't respond at that time with repentance and submission and, and became a follower of Jesus Christ, it's very, very, very clear that the gospel message had an effect on Paul's life. 
There's an axiom that goes like this. If you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one who yelps is the one that got hit. And the point of this is to say that Paul was hit. And maybe you have shared the gospel message with people, and there's some people who just are yelping and yelping and yelping. They're not responding, but they sure are fighting back. They're arguing. They're resentful. They're bitter. They're angry. And the point of this is to say is that Paul was hit. And we see that he was hit hard by the gospel message as he was the one who was yelping the loudest by resisting what he had heard, and by attacking the church. And so with, we read here, in, murder, in, in verses really 1 through 3, with, I would say, with murderous intentions in his heart against those who were the disciples of Jesus, while on his way to Damascus to arrest believers in Christ, Saul has this encounter with God. I would say as God personally and intimately revealed himself to Saul. And I think this account gives us a reminder and a clear picture of how Jesus came to us. Because I read this story here, and I read this account, and, and, and I see Saul's conversion, and I'm grateful, and I'm happy from it, but there's a part of me that goes, goes, why, Jesus, are you calling out to Saul in this way? Really, when we look at the wordage, and I'll talk about it a little later on, it's with affection, it's with great emotion for him, with care and concern. Saul's on the road, and has proven to have done this in the past, he's on the road to Damascus to have more Christians arrested and killed. If I was Jesus, I'd be showing up with, that, with the, the sword of fire coming from my mouth going, enough! But that's not what we see here. Not at all. And that's what I mean. We see this clear picture and reminder of how Jesus came to us, meaning this. The Bible says very clearly that when, when we were, while we were still against God, when we were in the midst of our sin, when we were in the midst of our rebellion, it may not look exactly like what we read here, but we all have that. Think back. The Bible says when we were completely undeserving of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's affection, of God's forgiveness. It says that's when Jesus called out to us and invited us to receive Him, to be changed, to have our sins forgiven, to receive eternal life. You see, the Apostle Paul would later write about this kind of amazing work of God to the Romans, and he would say in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, he would state it like this. He says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Paul's saying it's not because we deserved it, it's not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And it's humbling if you think about it. There's no other response, I think. It's humbly, it's a humbling thing knowing that God sought us, God called us, and God asked us to follow him and sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to die for us and restore us back to him. 
and that he did it, he did all of this while we were against him. An adversary. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, and you know this, it's this understanding of God's grace and mercy that produces that heart of thankfulness within us. It moves us to rejoice and to give praise to Jesus for what he's done for us. And this is the place that God called Saul to go to here. And this is the place that God calls each of us to go to, to live lives of thankfulness and worship and praise for what God has done for us. Realizing where we were at and who he is and what he's brought us to. You see, God, I love this, doesn't ask us to clean ourselves up. And maybe there's someone here this morning that, that's thinking like that. You know, that you've heard it before, and maybe you're one of these people here. It's like, if I go to a church, the whole building's going to burn down or collapse. You don't know what kind of person I am. Well, I'll stack stories with you. <laughs> I'll stack stories with you if you want to do that. But what I know is, is that God doesn't ask us to clean ourselves up. He didn't ask Saul. He didn't say, Saul, you know who I am. This is who I am. Go get stuff right, and then we'll come and talk. God doesn't ask us to clean ourselves up and then come to him. He simply calls us out and asks us to come to him and then let him fix what we've broken. To let him clean us up. Another great example of this, this taking place and, and seeing the heart of God through his son Jesus Christ is found in Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It says this, the story goes, this account, it says, Now it happened... As he, Jesus, was dining in Levi's house, right? Levi was a tax collector. And he was there, it says, that many other tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. This is the scene. It says, for there were many, what, many sinners, many tax collectors, and they, these are the ones that followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees, right, these self-righteous, prideful religious leaders, this is who they were, they saw him eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, and they said to his disciples, how is it? You can hear the snarky cynicism in their voice and their tone. How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, I love Jesus. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's what we read of here in this account. That's what we've experienced in our own lives when we had this encounter with Christ. And in light of this, we see that, that one of the Bible's greatest truths is this, is that God accepts us just as we are when we give our lives to him. We don't have to clean up our lives before we come to him. He welcomes us just as we are, as we bring to him all of our sin, all of our failure, all of our brokenness, our guilt, our shame, our weakness. And I'm here to tell you that's good news. Now, in Acts chapter 22, verse 6, where we also read about Saul's conversion, just to give you some bigger picture of what's going on here, we're told that these events on the road to Damascus happened about the noon hour. And then in Acts 26, verse 13, Saul, Paul, writing about this, says the light which we read about here in verse 3, he says it was brighter than the sun. 
And so this spectacular event, which also included Saul hearing a voice, right, speaking to him, it, it, it needs to be regarded as unusual. I would say it's a supernatural thing, right, what we're reading about. Considering God doesn't normally confront sinners with a heavenly light and an audible voice from heaven. That's not a normal, natural occurrence. And this was such an awesome display of God's power that Saul's reaction was to fall to the ground, is what we see here. And I don't think it was because of honor. I don't think at this point it was out of a reverence for God that Saul fell to the ground. I think it was a primal reaction of survival as he was terrified by what he saw and what he heard. This supernatural occurrence, the voice of God, a light shining brighter than the sun there at the midday. And when Jesus spoke to Saul, when we read through this here in these first interactions that they have, when Jesus spoke to Saul, we saw that he called him by name, repeating his name twice. And and, and, let me just say this so that we get the right thinking. Who here had a mom or a dad that when you were in trouble, they're like, they called you by your first and last name? My first name, I go by Sean. That's, my dad's name was Michael, but at home when I got in trouble, it was Michael Sean. You know, you get both names or maybe even your last name too, depending on how much trouble you're in. And, and, and we know that Saul's been up to no good. He's an adversary. And we might think that this Saul, Saul is something like that, right? And I, I want to point this out. It's interesting to note because when we read about this happening in Scripture, when we look at other biblical examples of a name being repeated when God calls or speaks to something, it's always with emotion, but it's most typically the emotion is affection. Affection. Like when Jesus spoke to Martha in Luke chapter 10, where he said to her, Martha, Martha, why are you worried and troubled about many things? There was care and love and concern for Martha. He loved her. Or when Jesus in Matthew 22 was weeping over, Matthew 23 was weeping over Jerusalem. You remember that. And he cries out and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. These are the ones who had rejected him. And he has this heart of compassion and suffering and longing for him. He says, how often I have wanted to gather your children together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And I believe that this is with the this is this is what we read here that it was with this kind of affection that that Jesus was calling out to Saul and not with some kind of anger like we might think. And yet when Paul heard the voice of Jesus questioning him about the persecution he was pouring out on the church, Jesus spoke to it here. Did you see this as a personal attack on him? In other words, Jesus in verse 4, he didn't ask Saul, why are you persecuting my church? That could have also been a a, a proper or right thing to say. Rather, he asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's safe to say that Jesus took what Saul was doing to the church personally. Is that not what you see here? That's what I see. Jesus is like, Paul, what are you doing to me? And I I think that these words of Jesus are a great example for us 
of what we read of in Hebrews chapter 4, because in Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us that we have a great high priest, one who sympathizes with us in our time of weakness, one that has gone through what we've gone through, and he knows what we're going through. He knows how we're feeling, and that his desire is to sympathize with us in our times of suffering. That's what I see being exampled here. That when the church was hurting and suffering, Jesus was hurting and suffering. After all, we the church, back then and still today, we're called the bride of Christ. And in Hebrews, we're reminded that, that when Jesus was here, he experienced all of the things that we do, and he felt all of the things that we feel. And when I consider us, I think that, that perhaps one of the most comforting and maybe even one of the most profound verses in the Bible that reveal the nature of God to us through the Son of Jesus Christ, who is the express image of God revealed to us, is this verse that says this about Jesus. It says, Jesus wept. And I think it's profound because this verse speaks of the time when Jesus' close friends were grieving the loss of their brother Lazarus, one of Jesus' good friends. And their grief was also shared by Jesus, who was moved by emotion to the place of tears. Jesus wept. The point of this is to say that still today, God is sensitive to our weaknesses. He knows when we're hurting. He suffers when we suffer. In fact, the Bible tells us that one of the reasons for why Think about this, that God has given or imparted the Holy Spirit to us is so that the Holy Spirit might act as an intercessor on our behalf for us in those times, communicating with God when it hurts so bad that we don't even know what to say. Have you ever been in that spot when the suffering, the pain, the hurt is so bad that you're lost for words to be able to communicate, to express the, the deep feelings that you have? We read of this in Romans 8, verse 26, where the Apostle Paul writes and says, he says, the, the Spirit, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought in our time of weakness, in our time of hurt and suffering. But the Holy Spirit, the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The heart of God for us. And, 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 and in this line of thinking, Let's take it to the big picture. In the same line of thinking, Paul would write to the Corinthians and he'd speak about the headship of the church, saying that, that Jesus is the head of the body, right? And the unity, and, and of the unity also that we have as individual members who make up the body, which Jesus is of the head. And being the head of the body, we can conclude rightly, just like our head is aware of what's going on with our body, Jesus knows when we're suffering. He knows when we're hurting. But listen, Paul Paul also points out that when one member of the church, which is like a physical body, is suffering, he says, man, you, your, your whole body's suffering. When one member is hurting, we're all hurting. And, and I point that out today in light of what we read here because this understanding should cause us as a family, as one body, to respond to one another in the same way that we see Jesus responds to us when we're hurting. With sympathy, with love, with compassion. The Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice, but it also says weep with those who weep. And so Jesus, speaking to Paul, 
I love this. He personally identifies with the per- persecution that Saul's brought against the church. Again, he's not confronting him with anger and resentment and bitterness and condemnation, but with love and drawing him to the place of repentance so that he could receive forgiveness. And Saul responds in verse 5 saying this. He said, Who are you, Lord? Now, as we read on, I'm going to make some conclusions. And I think in this moment, I think Saul was asking that question but he already knew the answer. And he was probably even fearful of the words that he might hear. Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus speaks these words, which is an insight into Paul's heart. It's an insight into what Paul's been going through up to this point that only he and God could have known of. He says it's hard for you to kick against the goats. I think this had to be the moment when all the seeds of truth, thinking back to Isaiah 55 that we read earlier, where God says, my word will go forth and it will not return to me void. I think that this had to be a moment when all those seeds of truth that God had been planting within Saul's heart and in Saul's mind were now sprouting up and being realized by Paul through a spiritual understanding. That God was giving him enlightenment. Because when Jesus answered Saul's question of, of who are you, Lord, by saying, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, it's clear again that Saul knew exactly what, what Jesus this was, even though there was was we know that Jesus was a common name at this time. He didn't ask for clarity. Can you tell me exactly which Jesus you are? He knew. He's all, oh no, this is, this is Jesus of Nazareth. And now, and now Jesus, whom Saul had believed to be dead, right? He didn't believe in the resurrection. Saul, who believed Jesus to be dead, this Jesus was in fact alive. Just like the Christians had been saying this whole time, and now he was standing there before him, speaking to him in the person. And consequently, the realization of this truth, think about it, alongside the thoughts of everything that he had done to persecute the church, which Jesus said he has taken as a personal attack against him, these things had to be flooding into his heart in such an overwhelming way. And furthermore, the conviction that Saul had to be a feeling must have been crushing when he heard Jesus say this, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Because this statement from Jesus was a a small parable regarding Saul in his life. Think about it. A goad was a sharp stick that was used by a, a farmer or a herdsman to prod an animal along the way. An animal that was unwilling to move on its own direction that the farmer wanted. And Saul was this unwilling farm animal, this stubborn creature. And Jesus was the farmer. And even though Saul was stubborn, we see that Jesus saw him as valuable, potentially extremely useful for his service. And so Jesus, through the prodding of the Holy Spirit, had been goading Saul into the right direction. And and this goading caused Saul pain. And what we're being revealed here is is the gospel message was having an effect on Saul's life. It was creating this conflict inside of him as he was going forth doing these things. But instead of submitting to Jesus, Saul kicked against the goad. 
And it only increased his, his pain. And this prodding to, to Saul's conscience, to his heart, it was happening the whole time he was persecuting the church. And I believe we can also conclude that this goading and convicting of the Holy Spirit, you think about what was this? What could it have been? And, 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 and as, as the Holy Spirit was bringing things to remembrance, I believe it was some of these memories of Stephen, right? That were probably burned into Saul's mind, the imagery of that, as, as he saw Stephen being, being stoned to death and yet also having the countenance or the face of an angel, having the peace of God come over him as Stephen prayed for God to forgive Saul for killing him. Father, forgive them. Conviction, these memories coming up. Furthermore, there had to be the words of truth, right? God's word does not return void. These words of truth that Stephen had spoke before the Sanhedrin, which cut Saul to the heart and continued to ring loud in his mind. And it was a combination of these things that Saul could no longer escape, no matter how hard he ran or fought against the truth. I think that describes our lives before we came to Christ. Where God was walking with us and, lying, and leading us and drawing us and the Holy Spirit was convicting us and we resisted and we resisted and we fought until that day when we finally surrendered. You see, the bottom line is that despite all of Saul's outward confidence, and I point that word out intentionally because I believe that we have family members and co-workers and friends and family members who know what we believe. We shared that with them, and yet they, ex they, they, they expel this confidence that, that we're wrong and that, that they're right and they're heading in the right direction. But, but, but what, we, what we know is, is that there's, and what we can read from here is there is doubts. There is uncertainty. The Holy Spirit is working in them to create conviction and to bring truth and to shine light onto those lies and working. And so this, this in spite of all of Saul's outward confidence, it's clear here, Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. What that means is there was something bothering him on the inside the whole time. The whole time. And man, God's doing that today. And Jesus was saying to Saul, it's hard for you to resist me. It's hard for you to keep doing what you're doing when you know in your heart what you're doing isn't right. People say there's no God. There's no heaven. There's no hell. The Bible makes it very clear that God has written eternity on the hearts of all men. It's an undeniable truth that we can't get away from. We have to deny it, forsake it, run from it. And yet it chases us down. Keep on doing these things that are wrong when you know in your heart that what you're doing is right. And it's, this is an amazing thing to consider because when I read this and I read this in action, I think we see, again, an example of God's great love, of the love that Jesus had for Saul. Remember, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was the persecuted one here. He was suffering. And yet, his concern wasn't for himself. His concern was for Paul and the painful effect that the goading was having on Saul. But as we read on, we see that this painful conviction is what leads to this life-changing response in Saul. And so in verse 6, it says, He, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What a question. And then the Lord said to him, rise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I forgot to mention this in the first service, but 
the, the answer here is profound because Jesus only told him to do what he could do in the immediate. He didn't say, well, let me tell you about your future. And we know what happens with Paul's life as he goes on. But he says, just do this now. What do you want me to do? Do this. And there's some assurance in that for us, especially when we look at this question and see how we too need to ask this question. And I think we can rightly conclude when I read about Saul, this response, trembling and astonished. I think that it was in part, only in part, because of the supernatural things that he was experiencing. This primal need for survival when you see something that's not natural, stepping into your world and, and, and assaulting you in such a way that you're now blinded by it. But I think we should also conclude that Saul was, 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 was also trembling and astonished because Jesus had seen and exposed what was hidden in his heart. Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it tells us, these things about God. It says, For the Lord God does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He sees our heart. The Bible says the thoughts and the intents, the motives behind everything we do, it's all revealed. It's naked and exposed before Him. And in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 through 10, on our own, apart from God, where no good thing dwells in us apart from Him, it says this it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's the state of our condition apart from God. It says, who can know it? And then God intervenes again and says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I, the Lord, test the mind, even to give every man according to his way, according to the fruit of his doings. And it's a reminder that God's a just God. And so with the wickedness of his heart exposed, revealed, Saul trembling and astonished, asks this question that we must all ask when God reveals himself to us and shines his light upon the true thoughts and intentions of our heart. This question, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the right, that's the right response. Lord, what do you want me to do with what you've shown me, with what you've revealed, with what you've made known to me about yourself? And when Saul asked this question, it, it, it reveals how it must be asked. It was personal, right? It was with submission and determined obedience. And in this moment, we see ultimately it all boils down to this, that Saul had stopped resisting the God of the universe. He had surrendered as best as he could in that moment to his lordship, and there were no more excuses. Just complete surrender. And I'm here to tell you, I know from my own life, and, 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 and it's true for you guys as well, we're all in the same boat, we make excuses. When God reveals himself, or shines the, the, the light of th truth into the dark places that he says this needs to be dealt with, we make excuses and we need to stop. With this new year ahead of us and this, 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 this looking ahead as we so often do with setting goals and New Year's resolutions, may this just be the simple resolution of our heart to go, when God reveals it, we'll no longer make an excuse. That we'll deal with it, we'll allow him to work in us. Lord, what do you want me to do? In light of this, it should be said that there's a big difference, hear this, between knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. Is there not? And Saul, he, he clearly, he, he previously had known about Jesus. He had heard what others had said about Jesus. And, 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 and we don't know for sure, but with most certainty, it, it seems like he saw Jesus 
prior to his, his crucifixion with his own eyes. And he'd, he'd heard Jesus speak during those times when he'd come to Jerusalem. Jesus, Paul was a leader, a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee. But now Saul had this encounter with Jesus, and he now experienced him in a very powerful and personal way. And Saul's knowledge of Jesus was different as a result of it. Why? We ask why. It was different because this experiential knowledge came through these two words, submission and surrender. Nobody gets to hell or stands before God on judgment day and goes, I didn't know. You never revealed it to me. You never made it known to me. The Bible makes it clear that'll never happen. That'll never happen. What's the difference then of knowing him or knowing of him? It's this, surrender and submission in those God encounters that we all have. And this coming to know Jesus in a personal way versus knowing about Jesus, let me tell you, it can only happen when we're ultimately willing to say this, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? Because it's in the doing that we experience God walking in us and through us and empowering us and refining us and changing us. Lord, what do you want me to do? And the fact of the matter, this is a very, truthfully, it's a very vulnerable and it can be an even frightening question to ask. Why? Because the answer is most certainly in some form or so from some fashion, it's going to entail us letting go of us, our will, our want, our plans, our future that we are hanging on to for ourselves. Letting go and taking hold of God's will and God's plan. We see that in Saul's life, right? Complete 180 degree change. Now about what God wants in this, not what he thought was right. But listen, in order to do this, it's, it's truthfully, they're, they're, we must have faith that God who loves us, in order to do this, we must have faith that God who loves us has a good plan for us. Not a plan for disaster. Sometimes we, we think, you, you just, like the children of Israel, when they were brought out from Egypt, right? They're walking along a little bit and things aren't going away and they're like, you brought us out here to kill us. We want to go back. Go read the account. But we have to have faith that God has a plan for good and not for disaster. He has a plan to give us a future and a hope. And listen, he's given us assurances for this, knowing that he's like this. And the assurances we have, which empowers us to move by faith, is this, how Jesus has already shown himself to be sacrificially in love with us. And I say that intentionally. We say that God sacrificially loves us, and he does. But here's this. Think about it this. God is sacrificially in love with you. That's an assurance that we have and, and that he has saved us by his work on the cross. These are undeniable truths that carry us into the future of going, I will do what you want. The worship team wants to come up and want to tell you a story as we close. I once heard a story about a man in a restaurant who was choking on a chicken bone. And he grabbed his throat and he fell to the floor as he couldn't breathe and he was feeling his life leave his body. And, and, and yet from five tables away, a doctor stood up, seen what was going on, ran over to the man and he dislodged the bone, saving the man's life. 
Once the man regained his composure, he said to the doctor, still lying on the ground, looking up to him, what do I owe you? To which the doctor replied and said, whatever you thought it was worth when you were choking. See guys, the point is that God's answer to our question, Lord, what do you want me to do? Listen, it'll never seem burdensome when we keep in mind what God has done to save us. The Bible tells us that as a result of realizing we have been forgiven much is to love much. The result of realizing that we've been forgiven much is to love much. He who has been forgiven much also loves much. So when it comes to God's answer to our question of, Lord, what do you want me to do? I think we can rest assured that whatever Jesus asks us to do, it'll be a privilege. It'll be an honor for us when we remember what Jesus has done. When we realize the price that he has paid to save us when we were choking on our sin and headed for an eternal death because of our unrighteousness. I read Romans 12.1 to you, and I think it's appropriate as a reminder to us. Paul writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Why? It's the reasonable thing to do in light of what God's done for us. It's our reasonable service. And so, Father, I pray with this new year lying ahead and the excitement of new things and new beginnings, Father, that we'd be willing to, to allow you to shine the light of truth onto our hearts, that you would reveal more of who you are to us, that we would walk with you and experience you in this next year, feel your presence, hear your voice, see your face. And, Lord, that we would ask this question in response to knowing you more. What do you want us to do? Lord, may we not be about our own plans and purposes for this next year as we set goals and, and um, even resolutions, Lord, but we would, we would hear from you, what do you want me to do? And Father, that we would respond with submission and complete obedience. Father, we love you. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name we pray.